Hey listeners, I'm Robbie, and this is The Breakdown. This week, I'm bringing you my conversation with Benton Whitley, partner and casting director at Stuart Whitley in New York City. Benton founded the casting office with fellow casting director Duncan Stewart in 2011. Some of the Broadway shows they cast include the revivals of Chicago, Lacage, Pippin, On the Town, and then The Great Comet, The Lightning Thief, and my personal favorite, Hadestown. They've also done numerous Broadway national tours, a bunch of regional theater, and their television credits include work for Netflix, Lionsgate, and the Disney Channel. Now, for those of you who don't know what a casting director is, that's okay. A casting director is hired by the producer, or the boss, to put together a list of actors to present to the creative team as possible options for a given role. Think of it as casting directors skillfully and creatively putting together a menu of actors for the director to pick from. Now, full disclosure, we recorded this during a blizzard, so that's hail you hear in the background, and I spent the first part of the interview trying to combat that. And the sound does improve, but it was important for me to share this interview and to share it first because we talked about so many important things that I think are at the heart of this podcast. Benton was so articulate talking about his decision to change his career path from an actor to a casting director after so many years of training. It was so helpful to hear that, and I don't think I'm alone in having those exact thoughts sometimes. He walked me through each step of the casting process and used the Tony Award-winning revival of Pippin as an example. It was so cool to hear how that show came together. And of course, we talked about auditions and how actors have so much more control of the audition room than we think we do. He made me realize that how we treat ourselves and how we talk to ourselves actually has so much to do with the impression that we make in the room. So much of success is about confidence and that we can't just wait for doors to open for us, we have to create opportunities for ourselves. I left my time with Benton feeling so inspired, obviously, and I know that you will too. Remember, if you like what you hear, please take a second to subscribe, rate, and review. I know you hear that a lot, but for a new podcast, it makes a world of difference. So without further ado, my conversation with casting director, Benton Whitley. Growing up, I know you went to North Carolina School of the Arts. You were a performer. Mm -hmm. um, was that the high school program that you did? Yeah. So uh, I am from a tiny town called Goldsboro, North Carolina, which uh, when I was a kid only had about 20,000 uh, citizens in it and is primarily an agriculture-based town and also has a military base in it. Uh, my family was not military. My family was more on the agriculture side. Uh, but those two occupations are what the majority of people where I'm from um, come from. Uh, and so I, I didn't really come from a, a family that had a long history in, in performing and entertaining. But I luckily have two of the most amazing parents ever that as a child when they saw that I really wasn't interested in playing baseball or farming mm -hmm. uh, and that what I really liked to do was like get on top of the dining room table and put on the Nutcracker, which I probably did for like maybe 10 Christmases in uh. a row. I'm a horrible dancer, P.S., but that never stopped me. Uh. Um, I always was in the mindset that I was going to be an actor when I grew up. I went to the high school program at North Carolina School of the Arts, which most people know of as a university, a conservatory university, uh, but actually has a small high school within it that's free for in-state kids. And wow. So I convinced my parents that it would save them money 
by sending me there because they paid for my room and board. The school did, so they paid to feed me. Wow. I can still so vividly remember sitting down with my father and telling him why he needed to let his 16-year-old son leave and go to this high school. Uh, but basically, I was like, Dad, they're going to feed me three meals a day, seven <laughs> days a week. Like, think of the money you'll save. And he was sold. <laughs> and he was, that's it. Yeah, from there, he was like, oh, that's why we're going to let you leave. Sure. Uh, no, but anyway, I, I went there, graduated from there. Uh, it was an amazing experience. And then from there, went to the University of Michigan uh, and studied musical theater there. Still thinking, I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be an actor. This is what I've got to do with my life. There's mm-hmm. something else I would rather do. And uh, fast forward to my sophomore year at Michigan. And, you know, you kind of get that sophomore kind of jitter where you start looking left and right at your classmates and at the other people in the department. You start comparing yourself to them. You start looking at the work that they're getting when they graduate, the lives that they're then going into when they leave Ann Arbor. And I started to become basket case. I really started to become super concerned when I had that kind of aha moment at the age of 20 when I realized that when I graduated from Michigan, I was not going to immediately be a Broadway star. Not only was I not going to be a Broadway star, but like I probably wasn't going to work. I wasn't going to have a job. I wasn't going to know what I was going to be doing with my life in six weeks, six months, or six years. And that for me, actually, at age 20, was enough for me to realize this is not the career that I should be going into. I, coming from this small town in North Carolina, you know, my my mom uh, was essentially a professional volunteer, and my father uh, owns a small business, is a veterinarian, and has owned the, the same clinic since he was, I think, like 26, and you know, he's like in his 60s now, and still a part of that practice, and so the element that they instilled in me uh, more than anything is is consistency and stability and and so you know being raised in this household where I grew up in the same house my whole life my parents had the same jobs my whole life uh, we went to the same church we had the same neighbors like all nothing changed and I didn't realize until I got away from that that actually I valued that just as much as my family did. Mm-hmm. And so for, for me, for my personality, I actually realized that that was more important for me than being than actually getting on a stage and performing. But what I also realized is that with my love with, with my love in performing, in addition to that, I actually am just like the biggest theater nerd in the world. I love theater. I, I love everything about it. I mean, when I was a kid, <clears throat> When I was like, by age 13, I subscribed to a lot of magazines because in the 90s, like, again, you didn't have websites and so, like, you actually had tangible things to look at. And I subscribed to GQ. Yes. Maxim magazine. Do you remember that of magazine? Course Which I is do. like yep. such a trash men's magazine. Yeah. Uh, um, in Theater, which is a magazine that no longer actually exists anymore, but it was essentially like a, a, a Playbill magazine type pub- publication, Playbill, and 
New York magazine. I at thirteen wow. living in North Carolina, somehow I don't know how I even knew to subscribe to it, but I just I knew that I wanted to live in New York when I was an adult. And so I thought maybe if I like started reading up on New York now that maybe I would be ready to move there when I was eighteen. So just you know, imagine like, you know, little closet at Benton at age thirteen in North Carolina, subscribing to Maxim magazine <laughs> and and Playbill magazine and New York magazine. I was sending so many mixed signals in the world, I don't know. Thank thank God my parents just hugged me and told me they loved me. Well, it's cool that you um, wanted to see what else was out there yeah, and what was well, outside of this small town. I think it ultimately really paid off for me specifically because what it did do is that it, it created a vocabulary uh, and created a, a kind of a, a mind, a Rolodex of, of names and shows, actors, composers. And I, I started even, you know, at such a young age, started to kind of understand what was going on in New York long before, 10 years before I ever moved here. So in college, when I had that like brash decision as a 20 year old that I was not going to be an actor when I graduated from Michigan, despite the ridiculously expensive education that I was going through at Michigan. And when you decided this, did you tell your friends? <laughs> yeah. Did you tell your, it almost I seems it like, like- It was like coming out again. Yes, it that's was, what it, it seems it like. Drew, it, it was, and it was actually, it was really hard. It, it, it was really hard because I had to mourn the death of not being an actor anymore. I had to, I had to realize that what I had told people I was gonna do from truly the age of like probably seven, I think by maybe like the second grade, there was no other occupation I ever put on my list, you know, at school when we talked about career day. I said that I was, I was gonna be on Broadway when I grew up. And so, yeah, it, it you know, it, it was a process for me, for me to actually come to terms with, for myself that uh, I wasn't a failure, that, that, that the dreams that I had uh, uh, could be c completely parlayed and packaged in a different way and still be my dreams and and that I wouldn't be letting myself down and I wouldn't be letting down people around me that had been so supportive of me my whole life and never told me no. And so actually the hardest people to tell actually were my parents and it, it was so hard. And honestly, they were crushed. They, 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 they first really were crushed and confused. You know, they couldn't, they, it, it came so far out of left field because for the longest time, I obviously was just so confident and sure of my ways that like this was what I was gonna do with my life. And so it, it took a lot of conversations, uh, a lot of long phone calls from Ann Arbor back down to North Carolina. But luckily, you know, they, they heard me out and, and, and pretty quickly, you know, put on a different hat and supported me in a different way and tried to help me figure out how the hell I could do something else with my life. You know, I didn't immediately say, I'm gonna be a casting director. Um, I wasn't that specific. But I said, I'm gonna do something on the other side of the table. I think that, you know, I, I have to, what I'm sure of is that I have to work in this industry. And so I... When was it that you, that casting came into view? Yeah, or that you knew so that it was a profession? Kind of, you know, sophomore year at Michigan, uh, when I made that decision, I, I luckily had amazing teachers that were really almost, almost unanimously really supportive of the idea. There were a few that also, that too, were kind of super confused and as to why the hell I would ever want to be anything but an actor. But most of them were awesome. And they took me under their wing and pretty immediately 
uh, I figured out the resources of the university and I started to direct. Uh, so the first thing I did was I, I started to direct shows. I, I, I directed a couple student productions at the University of Michigan uh, via their rec program. But then I also actually used the resources of Ann Arbor. Ann Arbor is such a cultured city and luckily they have amazing uh, theater actually in Ann Arbor. And so I started directing shows for this amazing performing arts high school that's, that's in Ann Arbor called Pioneer High School. It's this ridiculous high school that has, has won the Grammy for best music education and like has wow. amazing resources. Uh, I actually, at that university, I mean at that school, directed a couple shows, but the big thing I did for them was the first stage production of High School Musical. So High School Very Musical cool. was on the Disney Channel in 2000 and like what? I think that was like maybe five or six, something. Uh -huh. And uh, it became you know, an overnight hit, and Disney and NTI were like, well, shit, we've got to figure out how to make this like a franchise, which obviously they did so well so quickly. So they started to, to draft that screenplay into a script. And because Pioneer uh, has this reputation of having a, a wonderful you know, performing arts high school program, they somehow got the rights to do the actual like beta production of High School Musical. They, wow. they sent the scripts to us. Uh, literally, they were copied on copy machines. They were in binders. They were not bound. Uh, they ha had notes. Like they, It was so clearly a draft. And it's still, like, literally there were sections of the script that said, like, still unsure of how best to tell this moment on stage. Uh, how fun for and, you as a director to oh, get to was figure that out? coolest thing ever. And... Funny enough, in that production, actually, because again, that high school just pumps out amazing talent. In my production of High School Musical, Ashley Park, wow. now currently getting ready to star on Broadway in Mean Girls. Yes. Jack Falahey, who yep. is from, uh, what's the TV show? How to Get Away with Murder, right? Mm -hmm. um, the two of them were in it. Wow. Uh, and, and an assortment of other people, actually, who have gone on to have awesome careers and gone to awesome schools. Troy can tell his secret, then I can tell mine. I bake. What? Oh. I love to bake. Strudel, scones, even apple pandemic. Not another sound. Someday, I hope to make the perfect creme brulee. So I started directing, and, and I found that passion, and then I also actually stage managed a few shows, I produced a few student productions, um, some teachers uh, took me under their wing and did like some work-study programs with me on producing, uh, but the key was is that I did two internships in New York, and actually, so for anybody out there who wants to get into the business side of theater, and you financially have the ability and opportunity to do internships in New York, that really is the way to do it. Because, you know, there aren't college degrees in, in, in producing so much. Well, there sort of are. There, are. there are theater management programs, but there definitely aren't college degrees in casting, that's mm -hmm. for sure. There's nothing even close to it. And so most Broadway casting directors, and even TV film casting directors for that matter, originally were actors themselves. Like, mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's, it's the most common kind of career path. And so, what I did between my sophomore and junior year 
is an internship for what was then called Richard Frankel Productions, which is now called Frankel Green Productions. And they are a production company here in New York that at the time was producing on Broadway The Producers, Hairspray, The Sweeney Todd Revival of Patti LuPone, The Company Revival of Raul Esparza. Uh, those were the shows that they had at that moment on Broadway. And I... Just a bunch of shows no one's heard of. Right. Before. Well, they were also like, the reason why I applied for that internship was because I loved all those shows. Yes. Like the, you know, the musical theater queen in me was like, oh, I want to work on that. Yep. And so uh, I applied and interviewed and got this internship. And I spent the summer, the summer of 2006, uh, sleeping on a friend's couch and uh, spending as little money as possible because I was making no money, but getting the opportunity to be in a room every day with Broadway producers and general managers who really were making it happen. And I left that internship in the summer with a lot of new knowledge, but what I left it knowing most of all is that I probably didn't want to be a Broadway producer because Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, from my 20-year-old perspective, being a Broadway producer was just all about raising and finding money and budgeting money and just not having enough money. It was always just money, money, money. And yeah. that was a, that didn't seem very creative and theatrical to me. So I was like, mm-hmm. mm, okay, so maybe not a producer. Let me go back for my junior year at Michigan and kind of rethink this and, and, and keep directing shows and keep producing shows and, and hope another idea will come to mind. And that year, my junior year, uh, Rachel Hoffman, who is a casting director here in New York for Telsey, yeah. uh, who is a graduate of the University of Michigan Musical Theater Program. She, too, has a BFA in musical theater. And she came back and did a master class with the whole department. And by the end of that master class, I truly, like, in that two-hour master class, I so remember this moment, too, sitting next to my friends, Michael and Jessica, and, and turning to them in the middle of the meeting, being like, think I should be a casting director and like they were like yeah you totally should you know all the Broadway musicals Bernadette Peters has been in <laughs> yes I do So I went up to her afterwards and was like, Rachel, hi, I'm Benton. I don't think I want to be an actor when I graduate from here. And your job sounds really freaking cool. I would love to pick your brain on it. And she, for those of you who know Rachel, she is one of the nicest people ever. And Mm -hmm. she so graciously took time out of her day that afternoon. And uh, we went and had coffee. And she talked to me more about the job, and, and she ended up by saying, you know, I, well, you should apply for an internship at our company, you know. I'll, I'll put in a good word for you, and, and I think that that might be a really great fit for you this summer. And so I applied, got that internship at Tulsi, and that was the summer of 2007. And uh, I would say within, like, three days of interning in that office, I knew that I had to be a casting director. This was the job that was perfect for me. Um, it, you know, being a casting director for me is the perfect balance of both tangible and not tangible. Uh, you know, we have a goal that we must complete. 
we have to find the talent to play a role and that is a very tangible thing that anyone can understand and anyone can see that you have succeeded at or not succeeded at mm-hmm. uh, and so having just that that something that I could actually grab onto every day and say this is what I need to do today but then also simultaneously still get to be artistic still get to actually be a storyteller and still get to be in a room working and collaborating with other people on how can we actually convey and tell this story that we're trying to get get off the page that is what I loved about musical theater in the first place that is what is a little boy in North Carolina getting to hear someone talk about their feelings and emotions via song and to be vulnerable and for that to be okay for us to actually you know as a culture it's cool for us to hear the inner thoughts of a crazy person via song like we've somehow in the song and we relate to what they just talked about like that is what the little boy from North Carolina loved that is what that was what you know as a kid I didn't ever have the confidence to fully really do myself but I could do when I put on someone else's shoes and hat and so to still be a part of that process and still feel like I actually get to collaborate and get to you know get to connect with people in the dark on the other side of the stage that feels so good and that is that's why I have the musical theater bug in the first place and so casting was was perfect for me. I love that. I love how we start off doing one thing and as we get to know ourselves and we grow up and we go through school and we meet teachers and people that inspire us, we feel that we can find exactly where we fit in the industry, whether it's continuing performing or casting or being an agent. Yeah, Um, as in high school, you know, I went to this uh, awesome summer program at Northwestern called the National High School Institute that uh, has this really amazing theater program they call the Cherubs uh, that I still connect and have a lot of friends with here in the city and the woman that runs that program Lynn Baber she is a Chicago based actor and an amazing educator as well and I remember I was it was between my junior and senior year of high school when I went to that summer program and at the end of the seven weeks like in the last week or so she sat down with a whole bunch of us and just really had a very honest conversation with us about the reality of us actually truly being working actors as adults and and how hard that is and how hard that is on so many levels financially emotionally physically and she said something that stuck with me that I'll never forget which is just that you know when one door closes another window always opens and you have to look for that window mm-hmm. you can't just wait for that same damn door to be opened by someone else we can't wait for permission for someone else to knock on the door and open it up and introduce yourself you have to look around the room and find the other opportunities that you have the ability to open and make something happen and at the time it was you know i wrote it down in a notebook like in my terrible handwriting and I didn't really fully understand the importance and gravity of that statement until much, much later. And I luckily am a hoarder and I find everything sentimental and so I throw nothing away. And I found that book a couple years ago and I saw inside there that literally I like wrote down the date. It was like, you know, like July 25th, 2003, Lynn Baber. Like she's, she literally said, if there's anything you take home today, just please remember that when one door closes, another one opens. And I'm, a million people have said that. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think that Lynn came up with that. But I'm going to give her credit for it because I still today, like that, that is the way that I, I, I lived my life. And I'm so thankful that, that I 
had the ability that when I saw that just one door was not going to open for me for whatever reason, that, you know, there was, there is something else in the same house, on the same damn building, there are other doors and other windows that you can access. Well, the window you chose to open and go through has been so positive for you. Um, now being a partner at Stuart Whitley and having your own casting firm uh, is very exciting. And it's cool. And, I like it. <laughs> yeah, and you get to do exactly what you, you set out to do, just in maybe a different way than you thought you were going to do it. And totally. I think that's so exciting. And, and I applaud you for having that moment when you were 20 years old. I think a lot of people feel like they need to prove themselves or prove that they can be an actor or prove to their parents. Um, and it becomes so much about other people and not about totally. themselves and understanding exactly what's going on with them. So I think that's that's super important. It was so brash. It was such a brash 20-year-old decision to make. Like, and I really, I mean, you know, I, I, I totally jumped without the safety netting. And I, it, you might call that, some people might call that foolish, but I'm so thankful I made that brash decision. And that I didn't, you know, try to convince myself that I am made to be an actor and that's all that I possibly could do. And, you know, that I woke up one day and I was 40 years old and I was really unhappy and never actually accomplished any of the dreams that I ever wanted to be a part of. I was never to be in the room where, you know, all of the things happened that I read about in, in theater magazine in mm -hmm. 1996. That's incredible. Um, so I want to switch gears a little bit uh, to to today, and uh, and to I think there's going to be a lot of actors listening to the podcast who uh, already have a lot of questions. Um, some of this business can seem so mysterious, and I think a lot of uh, incredible acting programs around the country focus so much on the technique and the craft, and don't really get to talk about the business side of things. Um, mm -hmm. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about that, helping people navigate this business as they move to New York. Um, maybe some of them have read mag uh, New York Magazine and, mm -hmm. and GQ, <laughs> but maybe a lot of them don't know about New York. And it's important to me to um, give everyone the same opportunity moving to New York and not just those that went to the programs that prepared them for the business in a specific way. Um, so just starting from the beginning, uh, when you... Um, meet with a producer and you start meeting with directors and you start talking about their vision for these roles that you now need to bring people in for. Um, just talk about what the conversation is like in, in, in those initial meetings about their ideas for casting and how you kind of collaborate about that. Yeah, um, I can even talk about some specific examples. Um, so let's talk about the revival of Pippin, right? Um, so when that when those first conversations happened uh, it was there was just this idea that you know that they wanted to do a revival of Pippin and and Barry Weisler who is a, a, a genius producer had the idea of somehow really incorporating real circus performers in it. Mm -hmm. You know, the original production had acrobatic and circus elements to it, but definitely the focus was more on Fosse, 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 and, and with, you know, a little acrobatic flair in mm -hmm. it. But he actually thought, you know, how can we bring real circus performers into this story and justify using them in telling this story of Pippin? And so when uh, Diane Paulus came on board to do the show, 
she then brought on an amazing uh, circus choreography company called Set Doit, Seven Fingers in French, wow. uh, which is a Canadian-based uh, circus company. Um, and then also, of course, brought on a Fosse choreographer, Chet Walker, who, of course, worked with Fosse directly and uh, had set many Fosse shows. Um, and so it was figuring out how, you know, those three key people, Diane, Set Dwight, and the Fosse, Chet Walker collaboration, how the three of them could work together in a modern adaptation of Pippin. And so in the beginning, I mean, we, we did a table read of it, and uh, the table read, um, Gavin Creel played Pippin, because uh, who doesn't want Gavin Creel to sing a Stephen Schwartz score? Everything. <laughs> um, and uh, Tracy Toms uh, played the leading player. And that was the first time that, uh, the first idea was, could we possibly take this leading player role and not make it a man? Mm -hmm. And so uh, Tracy Toms seemed like a, a wonderful idea. She was fantastic. And we just heard how, we, we did a table read of it, and we heard how it would sound to have a, a female leading player telling the story and what would need to change and what didn't need to change. And kind of it turned out that very little of it actually needed to change. It just worked, just coming out of a female's mouth as well. Mm -hmm. um, and so those beginning conversations, uh, you know, well, when you produce a show on Broadway, Typically, the first conversations are what movie stars can we have to play in our show? So mm -hmm. we started there. <laughs> we talked through, you know, if, if we, if this were a movie, who would be playing these roles? Which, of course, is every casting director's favorite game to play. Mm -hmm. um, and once we got through those conversations and realized that the skill set that was going to be required for these principal roles in the show is so high that the likelihood of there actually being someone out there that is famous, quote-unquote, that actually can dance their ass off and sing and do, you know, acrobatic tricks, uh, that list was really short and basically had, like, maybe two people on it. So once we got past that idea uh, and then we started to actually get in the aud audition room and, and see people for it, uh, it was one of the the coolest kind of co uh, collaborative casting experiences I've ever had. Um, we got to show all different types for all roles because luckily Diane and the rest of the creative team were so unmarried to really any idea that they were willing to see everyone for it. And so, you know, I, I'm sure actors can tell their perspective of the story but i mean we saw men women black white latino young old we really saw everyone for the leading player because we really just were so unsure of just who it was going to be and what made mm -hmm. sense and so you know that was both awesome and exhausting at the same time because we had very little parameters to live in and so we kind of you know but it also was a casting it was it was a dream because we got to just show the best of the best for everything and so you know, that those are some of the best audition stories that I, I will have for the rest of my life, getting to see some of the most talented people in the business coming in and getting their take on the role of the leading paid player specifically, and also actually in the role of Bertha, which is, of course, the role that Andrea Martin ended up playing and, of course, won the Tony for and was amazing. Mm -hmm. And for those of you that didn't see the show, uh, Andrea Martin uh, basically got shot out of a cannon <laughs> during it. Yeah. She, um, she, she is n not in her 20s or 30s. She is playing a grandmother in this show. I believe she actually was 
in her mid-60s when she did this. She'd happily tell you that. Um, and she did acrobatic real, like trapeze acrobatic tricks. And the only reason why she did those is because she wanted to do those. They were not originally planned when they when they hired her for the gig. They just got in the they got in the rehearsal room and they kept pushing her just to see like what will this lady when will this lady tell us to stop? And she never did. And it was really smart of her because it got her a second Tony Award for it because what she ended up doing on that stage was just, I mean, a feat of nature. What good is a field on a fine summer night if you sit all alone with the weeds? Or a succulent pear if with each juicy bite you spit out your teeth with the seeds? Before it's too late, stop trying to wait For fortune and fate you're secure of For there's one thing to be sure of, mate There's nothing to be sure of Oh, it's time to start living Time to take a little from this world we're given Time to take time, cause spring will turn to fall In just no time yeah, I saw it. It was yeah. incredible. Yeah, I mean, she had brought down the house every night. She, I think, probably got a standing ovation, I think, at every performance, which mm -hmm. is pretty remarkable. And the American Theatre Wings Tony goes to... Andrea Martin, Pippin. With five nominations for acting, Andrea Martin takes home her second Tony Award. She won in 1993 for My Favorite Year. Oh my gosh. I ran up here like a longshoreman because I know we only have 75 seconds. I'm so sorry. Cameron Mark Valvo gave me this dress. Nobody else would. Anyway, um, I just want to thank him. Listen, um, I, I'm so nervous, and I'm going to put this down. Uh, because uh, I uh, because I know it's it's such a collaboration this show and I don't want to forget anybody and yet and I wrote this speech out but the font is too small so I'm really scared I'm not gonna be able to read it so I love Pippin I love the cast of Pippin they each one is a singular artist thank you all so much by the way for voting for me I'm so all over the place um, each one is a is a is a is a is an artist and it's a privilege to share the stage with them Yannick Toma my partner in the sky je t'adore do you know how wonderful it is for a woman of my age to be held in a man like that and never dropped? It's unbelievable. Um, um, Gary Gersh at Innovative, Perry Zimmel, my manager, Michael Oscars, my agent of over 40 years in Canada. Thank you for your unwavering love and support. Um, the Weislers, the Kagans, our producers, and Diane, uh, Diane Paulus, our extraordinary director, for giving me this opportunity. Oh my God, Gypsy Snyder for uh, making a dream come true and letting me run away with a circus. You're brilliant. To Chet, I'm going to read this. To Chet, Brad, Dominique, Scott, Kenny, Nancy, Charlie, Nadia, Mia, everybody I've ever trained with, and the brilliant Nathan Lane, my darling friend, for your inspired collaboration. To the crew, Michael, our rigor for keeping us safe. Um, who did I forget? Roger, what does that say? Oh, oh, Herson, and Stephen Schwartz, who wrote this thrilling, no, who wrote this thrilling musical. Thank you so much. My boys, Jack and Joe, you are the reason I'm standing here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, that audition process was amazing, and and it you know it it finally on the final callback day, 
when we brought in just two or three options for every role for, you know, like the last supper of the creative team and producers to see, it was like a table of maybe like 20 people, which of course is horrifying to actors. Mm -hmm. I completely understand. Um, we had three leading player options and one of them was a male. Mm -hmm. One of them was uh, a Latino actress and one of them was Patina Miller. And, uh, at the end of the day, it was, it was super clear that the role was, was made for Patina. And, of course, she ended up you know, winning a Tony Award for that as well. And uh, she, you know, again, what Diane does so well is she, she brings the actor to the role and not the role to the actor. And, and she shaped that role around what Patina does and what she does well. And she was captivating. And, and watching her have that final callback, and, and, and which was hours long, because again they just pushed her and pushed her just to see how far she could go in dancing, and how how many different keys she can now sing this song in. I mean, they, they worked her ass off, and at, we all in the day, it was a unanimous decision. It was just so clear. This was this was who the show you know could be centered around. so incredible and to be there for a moment when um, you know she had done Sister Act at this point she right. had done yes. Hair but you know this was before she had won a Tony Award before she was on the Hunger Games and then to be there from the beginning and seeing her winning that Tony Award totally must have been just so incredible along with all the other awards that show oh my won God. this is an honor of a lifetime this is a childhood dream come true for me from a little southern girl in Pageland, South Carolina, with a big dream of wanting to come to this big city and be a part of this thing, this, this Broadway community, and to be standing on stage in front of so many people I admire so much in this room, to the women in my category, you guys are inspiring, and um, I just am so in awe of all of you. Um, I just wanna say thank you to my cast, the most amazing cast in New York City right now, who knows? Um, you guys, I could not do without you. This has been an ensemble effort and um, I love each and every one of you. To our amazing crew at the Music Box Theater, um, to the creative team, Diane Paulus, 
oh my God, you visionary. Um, thank you for giving me this opportunity and believing in me. Uh, Chet Walker, forgive me the gift of Fosse. Gypsy Snyder, forgive me the circus. Um, to our amazing producers, please wrap it up. The Voicelers and the Kagans and everyone else, thank you so much. Um, to my mom, who has been my inspiration, thank you so much for believing in me and telling me that I could do anything I want to do. And to my stepdad, Tim, who we almost lost a week ago, um, I just want you to know I love you so much and I cannot wait to be with you tomorrow. And I know you can't see me, but I know you can hear me right now. And I just want you to know I love you. And finally, to my management, Jeremy Katz, Chris Highland, my vocal coach, Liz Kaplan, but most of all, my honey, my fiance, who I love so much. I cannot wait to marry you, and you have made me the happiest girl in the world. Thank you to the American Theater Wing. Oh my God. It's every actor's dream, right? That they, that they, they get to create a role that just it encapsulates everything that they do and have been working their ass off for their whole life. I mean, really, that that role showed every, well, I mean, I don't want to say everything Patina can do because there's mm -hmm. so much more, but it showed a ton yeah. of what she can do. It just really showcased her so well. Um, I loved it. So we are running out of time a little bit, but I just did want to touch on the uh, audition room just uh, yeah, very sure. quickly. Um, so ostensibly, like even for Pippin, you meet with the director, you meet with the producers, you figure out exactly, uh, or, or not exactly, maybe the ideas they have for certain roles, and then you release a breakdown. And I just wanted to know, from releasing a breakdown, you make your you make your lists. That you release a breakdown, you have an EPA, and how do you determine the people that you're going to bring in for each role? Um, in terms of, do you like to use specific agents? Do you like to use do you do you bring people a lot in from the EPA, um, and just how you kind of get the from the breakdown to the people that are actually gonna come in that day. Totally, I think it's different for all offices. So I'm just gonna speak for our office when I say this. Um, first and foremost, EPAs and ECCs do work. They work and I can fully prove that to you tangibly because in the cast of Great Comet, we had ended up with a cast of, I think roughly like 30, 32 actors were in that show and I think 21 of them made their Broadway debut in that show. That's incredible. And of those 21, I think something like 17 of them were non-union until we gave them that gig. And I think that of the 32 actors that were in the show, I think that our team initially found, I think, eight of them from ECCs and EPAs. There's a war going on out there somewhere And Andre isn't here There's a war going on out there somewhere And Andre isn't here There's a war going on out there somewhere Those of you out there that are incredibly frustrated about the system, uh, don't be. And the loggers just for fun! The loggers just for fun!
system of auditioning is a, a really imperfect system that we are all trying to perfect, perfect every day, but it is the best system that we have right now, I feel pretty confident in saying. And EPAs and ECCs work. And the thing that you need to realize is that, you know, our office and all, all the casting offices in New York, we, we cast multiple things. We're not just casting great comment in that moment, right? And so in EPAs and ECCs, you better believe that, that my team is, is thinking of all the shows that we're currently casting and hope to cast mm -hmm. and, and putting you, you know, into our databases for all of those projects. Because the truth of the matter is, is that it's, it's how casting directors, in my opinion, are, are valued. We're valued for who we know, but also who knew that we know. Because, frankly, you know, my mom is a pretty theater-savvy lady. She's seen a lot of Broadway musicals with me over the years. And I think that if I held her to it, she could sit down with about three playbills from last season. And she probably put together a pretty good cast list for a new Broadway show for me, just using, like, three playbills from last season. Mm -hmm. And... So what I'm saying is that like your mom could be a casting director, but what separates your mom from from most casting directors is the new people that we actually know and find and bring to the table. And often we find those people in open calls, EPAs, ECCs, YouTube search it, searches, social media, websites, showcases, and that is actually that that is how producers and creative teams value casting directors because they say at the end of the day where the hell did you find these people right because they've never heard of them they don't know them and they are so excited to meet them mm -hmm. so yeah epas and eccs work keep and going at these epas or open calls there can be so many people there and it can be overwhelming. What are some ways or some tips to stand out or maybe be your best self that you feel like you've observed over the years or ways you've um, been able to really notice people? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. I, I, something that I've been saying for a while now that I, I, I think really resonates with actors is uh, the definition of the word talent. Because uh, I do think that even, you know, 20-year-old me when I was in college and, and I was d figuring out that I didn't want to be an actor anymore, what I was doing is I was really starting to question, you know, my talent and compare my talent to the people around me. I was looking left and right. You know, this person's more talented than me. This person's less talented than me. Oh, God, why can I not be more talented? And so I think that one of the most useful definitions of the word talent is talent is executing skills with confidence. There's four words, four very simple words, but they're not simple at all. Talent is executing skills with confidence, right? Because I'm sure most of you, you know, most actors in New York have spent years honing their skills in the classroom, right? They've been working on becoming ba better ballet dancers, working on becoming better Shakespearean actors, better singers. And then they come into the audition room, they come into these EPAs and ECCs, they are so insecure and have no joy or enthusiasm or confidence in what they're about to share with us. And they wonder, it's like a head scratcher for them. It's like, why am I not getting a callback? Why, what's not clicking, right? I don't understand. When I sing in my hometown for my family, they tell me they can't take their eyes off of me. They tell me this is what I should be doing with the rest of my life, right? And, and, and that, that is what 
gives us the confidence, you know, that validation, that physical validation is actually in the beginning for lots of us is what actually makes us feel like this is what we should be doing with our life, right? Mm -hmm. But then you move to New York and no one tells you that anymore. Your family's not there to tell you that you're the shit, right? And instead all that happens is you just go to auditions that never turn in anything. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is that confidence and that, that thing that made you special and made you feel like that you should be sharing what you do with other people diminishes and gets smaller and smaller and smaller until finally you wake up one day and you go, I have no freaking clue why I am even doing this. And then you really don't book jobs anymore. Why? Why would we want to pay a hundred and God knows how many dollars to sit in the dark and watch some insecure person try to share their thoughts and feelings for us? That's not entertaining. That's not fun, right? Entertainment is heightened reality. You have to be a superhuman. You have to, with joy and confidence, share your vulnerability with us. That's what makes it okay for us to watch. So it's not okay for us to watch anymore when that happens. And that's what the majority of people, really talented people, really skilled people, still do when they walk into an audition room is that they, they have no, no confidence or joy in what they're doing. And so that's not commercial. That's not professional. That's not entertainment. That's not entertaining. And so what I think makes people different and makes people viable for projects is actually being able to come into an audition room and share their skill set with the highest level of confidence and joy so that we are actually relaxed while, while watching you. Then we can actually enjoy watching you, sit with our shoulders dropped and watch you, right? Because, you know, skill sets vary. Some people are 10 out of 10. Some people are, are 6 out of 10s, right? But what's amazing is that there are people that are 6 out of 10s at something that can still come into the room and with the highest level of confidence and joy share that skill set with us. And for some reason, we still can't take our eyes off of them. And you see it on Broadway stage every day. You go see a show and you say, oh, I don't love that person's voice. Or, oh, that person's just an okay dancer, right? But one thing that's not disputable about people on a Broadway stage is that everyone up there is sharing their skill set with the highest level of confidence. And that is Broadway. And that is what everybody has to figure out how to actually do for themselves. They have to have that kumbaya moment with themselves to actually tell themselves that they are enough, that they should be doing this, and that them telling themselves that is enough. They're not waiting around for other people to tell them so that they go into the room and they actually share what they did when they were 10 years old in their tiny little town where people couldn't take their eyes off of them. They still can actually do in an ugly, fluorescently lit room on 8th Avenue. I think that was incredibly well put. <laughs> I think that was amazing. Uh, I think, and something that's so important for everyone to hear, whether they're an actor or an architect or, you know, anything. It's just that confidence. Yeah, and really it, it translates to everything. It yes. does. It totally does. Yeah, and it translated to me to become a casting director, you know, that with that same energy and point of view that I had when I was a kid when I just knew that all I could do with the rest of my life was be an actor and I knew that and that confidence just springboarded me, you know, into so many opportunities. I, I did that with casting as well. And yeah, you could do that. You could be a scientist or, or a doctor mm -hmm. and, and, and I think the same skill set is required. And lastly, I just want to ask you, I think it's important for people to continue their skills and continue learning um, when they get to New York and take classes with different people. And I know something that you uh, 
are very proud of and uh, excited about is teaching as well. And I just wanted to know um, if you could tell people where you teach, uh, what kind of things you... Oh, totally. This does not need to be a commercial for me. But yeah, no, uh, a lot of people here on my team, they, they all teach as well. Um, and I think that teaching, it, it's just, it's so beneficial for us as casting directors to teach for us to actually kind of be able to go into a classroom and no longer just have the blinders on of do you solve my problem today for the role I'm looking for, mm -hmm. but actually be able to treat you like a human and work with you to actually figure out who you are. Mm -hmm. um, it, it helps us so much, nine to five, Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, um, I, I, I teach here in New York. Um, There's so uh, many uh, acting studios yeah, or one-on-one -on -one casting, uh, uh, casting uh, the green room, actors green room, um, that it's just sometimes overwhelming. I totally. think for people to understand where, where to there, go yeah. and where to spend their hard-earned money. Yeah, well, I think it's important to to work with casting directors and, and creative teams uh, that uh, work on projects that you want to be a part of. I mean, I, I think that's probably the no-brainer part of it. Um, but I think it's also really important to, to if you're going to do the pay-for-play thing, to make sure that what you're experiencing is personalized. Because uh, I just think you get more out of it, obviously, that way. Um, and, and so that is something that, uh, in one of the formats that I teach in, uh, I meet with actors, actually privately, and do one-on-one -on -one meetings with them after I actually work with them in a classroom setting so that I actually can, act, can gear my feedback personally towards them in the privacy uh, of my office and give them career advice of where I think they are in this moment and what will actually help them book their next job. Um, uh, that that seems to be super helpful to a lot of actors, um, but there are there are a lot of great education opportunities here in the city, and don't underestimate actually how important they are, not just for you to meet the right people, but also for you just to not be stagnant and continue to grow. You know, uh, continuing education is important in whatever you do with your life, uh, just to stay on top of of trends and styles, but also just to continue to grow as a person. Because if someone told you when you graduated from college at 21 that like you've peaked education-wise, that's all you're ever going to learn and don't ever expect to learn anything else, then that would be really scary uh, because <laughs> I, I will speak for me when I was 21 and what I know versus now, wow, yeah, there's a too. big difference. So please just make sure that you're always pushing yourself and growing uh, in, in any way that you can do that uh, run towards it. Cool, well Benton, thank you so much for uh, letting me come here today. Of course, and my this pleasure, was so Robbie. So incredible, and uh, Benton's information is all going to be on the website. Um, yeah, and follow me on social media. Follow my website. Um, yeah, we didn't even talk about that. Though, but it's something that's so important for actors, especially new actors, and leave the city. It's just having an incredibly strong social media pre presence and website. Um, we all have iPhones and laptops, and it's let's let's be real. It's what we all look at more than anything else. And I see you digitally nine times more than I see you physically. And so having a strong presence online that sells you as a happy professional person who also happens to be skilled is super, super important. So please don't underestimate that. Yeah, that's really important to know. Uh, the industry is changing so much and social media is such a huge part of our lives and um, probably also important to know that many people, employers, casting directors are looking at your, you know, are looking at your accounts. And For sure. Oh my God. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a given. Cool. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Robbie.
For more information on the podcast and our guests, visit thebreakdownpodcast.com and connect with us. Let us know you're listening on Facebook and Instagram at The Breakdown with Robbie. And again, if you like what you heard, help spread the word and make sure to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this. Thank you so much for listening and stay tuned for another episode of The Breakdown.